0: All right. You came back again. You're a glutton for punishment. I'm glad you're here tonight. Uh, how many of you were in another part of the building yesterday, or you weren't here yesterday morning? Wow. Okay, so all of the people that weren't here came tonight, and all of the people that were here yesterday said, Okay, got enough of that. <laughs> um, but uh, our, our theme is not Mark Trotter. It, the theme that we're talking about uh, this week is go hard or go home. And I know that that sounds uh, a little in your face, and I don't really mean it that way, kind of. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, really, I think that one of the craziest things about Christianity right now is there's this lack of people that are just going for it. I mean, with everything. Yesterday, we posed the question, whatever happened to just going for it? And we talked about the fact that in the lives of people, that we we look back in history, people that really did go all in, totally went for God. They all have a very similar testimony. God got them to a certain place and he got them there a different way but God brought all of them to a tipping point. Uh, What we called yesterday a line of demarcation a place where once you step over that line you're in. And and what I'm hoping that God will, will do this week is that this will be for many of us it'll be that line of demarcation it'll be that tipping point and that maybe even tonight and some of us might step over that line and totally go for it one of the the things that i'm convinced of that causes christians in our day not to go for it is i'm not sure that all of us have experienced Biblical salvation, and a lot of us who have experienced biblical salvation, I'm not so sure that we really understand the salvation that we received. And, and tonight, I want to. I, I know this. This sounds crazy with this group that's out on a Monday night, but I want to. I want to talk about whatever happened to biblical salvation. And I want to pose to you tonight three questions that I I believe show the contrast between what contemporary Christianity is saying and what true biblical Christianity actually is. And before we begin, I want to just pause. Uh, Again, thank you for leading us in, in worship tonight, Wayne, and the team. Masterful job. But let's just still our hearts one more time. And let's, let's ask that God will, will speak to us tonight. Lord, thank you for folks that love you, that are here on a Monday night. I, I pray that tonight as we look into the truth of your word, that you will meet with us in a very unusual way. We're very accustomed to coming to services, singing, praying, opening our Bible, listening to a message, and, and yet I'm praying tonight that you'll use this time to change the destiny of all of us that have gathered in your name tonight. And so, Lord, would you, would you just hijack this service tonight and use it to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The first question I think will help us maybe to see the contrast between contemporary Christianity and and what the Bible actually says that true Christianity is, is this. Number one, is biblical salvation merely a matter of a place? Or is it actually a matter of a person? In other words, does salvation really come down to wanting an escape route from hell? Or is it actually about us wanting to be connected in a relationship with God? Now, folks, let me make perfectly clear that there most definitely is A hell to fear. Jesus makes absolutely no bones about that. And listen, it's part of how the Holy Spirit of God gets our attention. He reproves the world of judgment. But listen, judgment and and hell isn't certainly the end-all reason of why we call upon the name of the Lord. The gospel, or the, the, the good news, isn't first and foremost good, because we don't go to hell, because the issue of salvation isn't our separation from a place. It wasn't that we were separated from heaven. The issue of salvation is that we were separated from God. And all through the New Testament, Jesus said that his purpose in coming was to bring us to the Father, man, to restore us to a relationship with God. You see, our our problem is, is sin, but sin didn't cause us to lose the promise of heaven. It caused us to lose the privilege of a relationship with God. And again, when our Lord Jesus Christ talked about what he came to do, and when the writers of the New Testament talked about what he came to do, that's what gets emphasized. A, a relationship, a person. And heaven is simply a byproduct of being restored to a relationship with God. And hell is simply the consequences or the byproduct Of not being restored in a relationship with God. And and there are so many verses that we could look at tonight to to show that. I've chosen just a a few in this first point. And and the first one that I want to show you, the context is, is the night before Jesus died. And Jesus is praying To the Father about this very thing that we're talking about tonight. He's he's praying to the Father about this thing of salvation. This thing of of life eternal. And in the midst of the prayer, he teaches us something monumental, y'all. In John chapter 17, in verse 3, he says this. And this is life eternal. Eternal. Okay, he's praying to the Father. Now, does anybody here think that Jesus is trying to clue the Father in on what life eternal is all about? Okay, here it is, Father. You've been wondering. I think this might be for us. And this is life eternal. Okay, right from Jesus' mouth now. That they might... Spend eternity with me in heaven. Is that what it says? No, and this is life eternal. That they might know thee. The only true God. And Jesus Christ. Whom thou hast sent. Listen, y'all. That's what Jesus said is the essence of of salvation. It's knowing him and knowing his father. John, who of course was the one who was used to record those words, recorded something very similar in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. He says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding. And I want you to notice what the understanding is about. that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, this is the true God and eternal life. Here it is again. This is what eternal life actually is. It's knowing the God of the universe. And listen, that's what makes this thing of eternal life, so absolutely incredible. And to comprehend how incredible God thought it is, would you listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24? Two of my favorite verses in the Bible, man. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but man, listen to it with freshness, would you? Thus saith the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this. That he understandeth and knoweth me. Wow. Y'all. That's what makes salvation so great. Not the place that we get to go when we croak. But the person that we get to know in life. God's intention isn't just that we have a connection with him, that we have an acquaintance with him, or that we know about him. He wants all of us that name His name to know Him. Not just know about the Word of God, but to know the God of the Word. And and, and I pray that God will break our hearts to fulfill His intended purpose in salvation, that all of us would genuinely know Him. What I'm saying to you is... The reason I believe that people don't go hard and go all in with Christ is we don't know him. If we know him, y'all, you got all the motivation every single day of your life. There's a second question that I think accentuates the contrast between contemporary Christianity and the Bible. Question number two. Is biblical salvation merely a matter of rearranging my life? Or is it actually a matter of relinquishing my life? In other words, is salvation really just a matter of addition? And what I mean by that is adding Jesus onto my life? Or is it actually... A transformation. And the reason that I think that's such a pertinent and valid question is that what I think I hear contemporary Christianity saying and what I think I see contemporary Christianity living is that salvation basically boils down to praying a prayer where you purposely add Jesus onto your life and then rearranging your life to whatever degree you choose to accommodate him. Is that salvation? Because I think that misses the point. Let let me see if I can illustrate it for you. I I, I think that if we just step back from it, we could say that among those who Make a profession of faith, that is, they at least profess with their mouth that they're saved. I think we would agree that there are certain categories of people. First of all, there are people who would say that Christ has a place in my life. And to put it in the simplest terms, this was my life, this was my testimony. I had my family and relationships box, and I had my career and my job box, and I had my money and possession box, and for however many years, this was my life. But then, I went to church, or somebody told me about Jesus, and the most glorious thing in the world happened. I added the Jesus or the Christ box onto my life. Now listen, that is no doubt the testimony of probably a good number of people in this room tonight. But then there are other people, and and they they would say more than that. They would say that Christ has a prominent place in my life. And sure, their life has all of the other boxes. they got the family and relationship box, the career and job box, and the money and possessions box. But for them, Christ doesn't just have a place, or he doesn't just have a box. He has a prominent place. His box is number one. It's the first box, and his box is bigger than all the other boxes. And then there are other people who would say even more than that. Because they would say, Christ has... You already know what I'm going to say? He has the preeminent place in my life. And again, their life has all of the same boxes. The family and relationships box, the career and job box, and the money and possessions box. But with these people, the Christ box isn't just first, and it isn't just the biggest. It's actually above all of the other boxes. And you'll notice that it's strategically positioned to touch and influence all the other boxes. Okay, now here's what I want to do. Craig, would you put up on the screen all all three of the, the, the possibilities there? Okay, Christ has a place in my life. He has a prominent place in my life. He has the preeminent place in my life. And here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to look at this, and I want you to, as honestly as you possibly could, I want you to look up there and say, which one best characterizes my life? Not which one do you think should characterize your life, not which one do you wish characterized your life, but which one would you actually say characterizes your life? And if you really want to assess it properly, you might want to just ask yourself, which one would my spouse say characterizes my life? Or which one would my kids say characterizes my life? Or which one would my parents say characterizes my life? Or which one would my friends at work or my friends at school say characterizes my life? Okay, that's the answer we're looking for. Okay, so do you think you have your answer? Okay, now let me ask you another question. And this may be, it may seem obvious to most of you, but which one of the three would you say is the biblical one? Which one would you say is the, the, the biblical character, characterization of salvation? But depl- don't answer out loud. Okay. <laughs> okay, do you think you have it? Because, listen, the reason that I didn't want you to answer out loud is because, do you understand the biblical one isn't up there yet? And I think for some of you, I probably know what's going through your heads, and you're thinking, oh my, how could that third one not possibly be, the biblical one? I mean, for real? Jesus coming into your life and us allowing him to touch and influence all the other areas of our life, how could that not be the biblical response to salvation? And you know why it isn't? because what it assumes is that we still have a life. It works off of the premise that after salvation, our life still remains intact. And that it's because of the the goodness of my heart or because of my great humility or because of my deep commitment that I choose to allow Jesus to have the preeminent place in my life. And, and I, I, know, I know we would never in a million years articulate it with our lips like that, but, I, but when I think I still have a life, after salvation and that it's up to me to determine the place that Christ has in my life and it's up to me to determine which area or areas, if any, that I'm going to allow him to touch. Listen, as spiritual as that might sound, that I'm going to allow Jesus to be preeminent in all the areas of my life, what it screams is that there's actually someone else That is more preeminent than him. And you know who it is? It's me. And at the end of the day, who is it that's still calling the shots? It's me. And listen, I I know that's strong, man. And I know that it goes against the, the grain of everything that contemporary Christianity communicates. And that's exactly why I'm saying it. Because do you understand that the idea that I allow Jesus to touch and influence my life in the areas of my own choosing is a concept that is absolutely completely foreign to everything the New Testament presents concerning our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? And having that comprehension will ultimately leave me misguided and misdirected about where I actually am spiritually, and it will leave me woefully ignorant about what the Christian life actually is and how it's actually lived. It's just to miss the point. Because the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come into my life so he could simply have a place in my life, Or have a prominent place, you know, a key place. Or he didn't come to have the preeminent place or the most important place. He took up residence in me and in you to be our life. The biblical characterization of what salvation is, is that Christ is my life and as my very life it might look something like this he encompasses all of the other areas of my life so that there's when it comes to family relationships or relationships with others there's no choosing involved He's the Lord, and I don't choose the place that he has in them. That's already been decided. I simply submit to his lordship in those areas. And when it comes to my career and my job, again, I'm not choosing anything. I'm just obeying what his word clearly revealed about those things. And it's the same with money and possessions. I don't have any money. I don't have any possessions. I'm just a steward of what is his. So I I no longer see that 10% is the Lord's that I choose to give to him. But 100% is the Lord's and I simply follow his lordship in all of it. That's the essence of salvation. Now, Okay, so you know, we're looking at these different categories of people. Okay. I'm not saying that if you, know, if you were in one of those other three categories, you're lost and you're going to hell. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that for, for one of those categories to be what we think biblical salvation is, we still haven't understood our own salvation. And I'm just advocating that when it comes to our own salvation, we make certain that we understand that He's not looking to simply have a place in our life, but He fully intends to be our life and that be that understanding by which we operate. And when it comes to the salvation of others, that we make certain that they understand that the call of Christ through the gospel isn't about him being added to their life, but that he wants to be their life. And that it isn't about rearranging their life to accommodate Christ, but it's about relinquishing their life to Christ. And that it isn't about addition, that it's about transformation. I mean, listen, that's what biblical salvation is. How could we possibly keep that under wraps? Jesus never did. I mean, just look at the New Testament sometime and look at the invitation that he extended to his would-be followers. And just take your your New Testament sometime and look at the explanation that Christ gave through Paul about what this thing of salvation is. You know how how a lot of of Paul's teaching to us starts? What? Know ye not? I mean, he's going, how did you get to salvation and not understand this? For example, in Romans chapter 6, Verses 3 and 4. Here he goes. Know ye not? That so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death? Let's just stop there for a second. Let's make sure that everybody in the room, I think we get this. i, I got to say it, though. He's not referring here to water baptism, but the baptism of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. The baptism of the Spirit, where the Spirit of God immersed us, or... Placed us into Christ and specifically into his death, burial, and resurrection. It's what water baptism pictures. But in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it's not water baptism, but the baptism of the Spirit. So again, in verse 3, he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And what that means is that spiritually, when, when we opened our heart to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and we were calling on his name, what was actually taking place is the Spirit of God took us back to Christ's cross, and we died with him. A death took place in us the moment we were calling on the name of Jesus, y'all. And then spiritually, at that very moment, the Spirit of God took us and baptized us, placed us into, immersed us into Christ's burial. And we, spiritually speaking, went down into Christ's grave and we were buried with him. And then, spiritually, the resurrection of Christ was enacted in us. And just as surely as Christ came up out of that grave, we were raised with Christ from the dead and with the same exact power that raised Christ. And here's the kicker. What came up out of that grave was something completely different than went into it. We didn't just come out of that grave with something added to us. We came out of that grave a new creature in Christ. We came up out of that grave transformed. We went into that grave dead in sins. But according to Romans chapter 6, we came out alive unto God. You know what you call that? You call that transformation? Spiritually speaking, we were completely changed. We changed families from Satan's to God's. We changed kingdoms from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We changed realms, man, from the realm of sin to the realm of righteousness. In terms of the Spirit of God baptizing us, immersing us, placing us into Christ, we could sum up Romans chapter 6 this way. I went into his grave alive, but dead. And I came out dead, but alive. Say what? Meaning this. I went into his grave alive to me but dead to him and came out dead to me but alive to him and listen do you understand that's what salvation is that's what he's saying don't don't you know this let, let me tell you 21st century Christianity doesn't know this what don't you know this? That listen, that's the transformation that you constantly see the New Testament referring to. As in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, For ye, all of y'all, are present tense dead. And your life is hid with Christ and God. And watch verse 4 now. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. But it's his life, y'all. We don't have one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Here it is again. What? Know you not? Again, Paul is absolutely dumbfounded that we don't know this. And again, I say to you, in the 21st century Christianity, we don't know this. What? In other words, are you kidding me? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? And (coughs) ye are not your own? For you're bought with a price. Therefore, because it's no longer your life, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are gods. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse eleven. For we which live, okay, that is that have physical life and know Christ are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And an easy way to get your head wrapped around what he's saying is this. Christ laid down his life and died to give us life. And once we become a recipient of his life or salvation, you know what he intends? For us to return the favor. In other words, for us to lay our lives down and die To give him life. So that it's actually his life that's actually being lived through us. And it's his life that's actually being clearly seen through our bodies. Now, listen. Do you understand what I'm telling you is not the deeper life? This is Christianity 101. All we're talking about tonight is what salvation is. So if you think, oh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not quite there in that deeper life thing with all of y'all. Do you have salvation? If that's for me, tell them I'm busy. Okay. You got time for one more? Okay. I'll try to think up one. Okay. Okay. So here's, here's the third question. It, it, and it, it, it's really closely related to these last two, but it's, it's, it's different. Okay, trust me. Is biblical salvation merely a matter of a destination? Or is it actually a matter of a destiny? And I'm not just playing semantics. Okay, it's not a word game. In other words... Is salvation simply about God taking us to his home when we die? Or is it about God making us his home while we live? Because everything in this book seems to teach that salvation is about bringing people into a whole new type of existence while we live. Yeah, I get it. Okay. It certainly has tremendous eternal ramifications about our existence after we die. Nobody's contesting that. Nobody's questioning that. I'm just questioning why it is and how it is that with everything the New Testament reveals, we've somehow shifted the focus of man's salvation to be a destination after this life That seems to be void of any emphasis concerning the destiny that God intends to impact and dictate every aspect of our entire being in this life. Did you hear that? I don't think I can repeat it. (laughs) So get the CD. Listen. For real now. In light of everything this, this book says... About what salvation is. Wow. Somewhere along the way. I think we've just all got to ask ourselves. What in the world happened? How in the world. Did we get here? And I got to tell you man. when When you. If we were really serious about trying to answer that. From a historical and a biblical perspective. It would get real spooky. You want to do it? Okay, G- give the spooky music now. Okay, really, it, it does get, get scary. So let me, let me just take a couple of minutes to try to take what, I, what was an unbelievably deep and intricate stroke of the devil upon biblical Christianity. And, and let, me, let me see if I can just try to find a way to simplify it so we can get our heads wrapped around it. Okay, now... Love the fact that teenagers are here, middle schoolers are here. Now, this is going to sound like I'm talking to all the old folks. Okay, that's everybody over 20. <laughs> listen, I really want you guys to work with me for the next couple of minutes, because if you can get this... Because uh, us old people, I'm not so sure that we can all get it. So pray for all the old people in the room, including me. Okay, now listen. If you go back about 150 years or so, okay, we're, we're in the mid-1800s. In our country, we were still in the midst of the Great Awakening. The thing that just trips my head out, Jeff, is when I think about the history of this church, the fact that this church began when the Great Awakening was still going on. In fact, if you study the history and you know, for those of you who've been around forever, I, I, I've traced the history of our church and how it actually started. And it started from a church planting movement during the Great Awakening as it began to move westward. And here we are, uh, whatever, 155 years later. In fact, th- right now, March of 1858 is when this place started, during the Great Awakening. And listen, the Great Awakening was a powerful move of God in this country. Okay, is this, is this boring, you guys? Don't let it bore you yet, okay? It's, it's a little more boring in just a second, okay? But there was a very powerful move of God in, in Christianity in our country. But now listen, in Europe, Christianity was experiencing a frontal attack Darwin had postulated his theory of evolution and it wasn't long before philosophers had adopted it into their philosophies and it wasn't long after that that theologians adopted it into their theologies and by the year 1882, the year of Darwin's death, Nietzsche writes his infamous statement, God is what? Dead. Dead. And it wasn't long before the philosophy of the day became humanism. And humanism basically is a a philosophical statement, make sure you're listening, that says that the end of all being is man's happiness. The happiness of man. And that the whole reason that man exists is his happiness. Okay, now that had all kinds of ramifications. But you need to understand that in the mid to late 1800s, when humanism invaded our world, Christianity needed to exist. There were a lot of people that made their livelihood by being pastors of churches. And a good portion of people found church as a key part of their social networking because they didn't have email and Facebook yet. And so church was the place where You got connected, man. So even though God was dead in people's minds, and even though the message of Christianity was no longer relevant, it wasn't just as easy as closing the doors, and it wasn't long before there was a great divide in Christianity. One group were referred to as the liberals, and they were the ones who bought into this whole philosophy of humanism and this whole idea that God is dead. And, and they tried to hold on to some kind of relevance in Christianity by saying something like this to their generation. They, they, they were saying, listen, we, we, really can't, we really can't say that there's actually a heaven or a hell, but we do know this that you got about 70 years to hang out and do this life thing. And so listen, if you'll come on Sundays, we'll enlighten you with some real cool poetry and we'll expose you to some of the trendy little adages and axioms of uh, propagated by some of the great minds of our, our day to so help you with your three score and ten. And again, we can't really tell you what's going to happen to you after you die, but we can tell you that if you come every week and help us pay the bills, it will help you to be as happy as you can in life. And what it was was the epitome of humanism. And what had actually happened is now what churches were saying is that the end of re- man's or the end of religion is man's happiness. But do you realize that for 1,800 years, the clear teaching of Scripture had been that God doesn't exist for man. But man exists for God. And that this life isn't first and foremost about man's happiness, but Christ's glory. In other words, life isn't really about man's happiness, but his holiness. Listen now, a holiness that because of man's utter sinfulness is an utter impossibility, leaving us to cry out to a holy God for a righteousness that is outside of ourselves, a righteousness that could only be found in a mercifully righteous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who grants by the gift of His grace a righteousness that we could never achieve, that we could never attain on our own, for every person who will call on Him as Lord. But listen, after 1,800 years, the message changed. So that now preachers and churches were saying, the end of religion is man's happiness. But there was a group that arose in response to this nonsense, a group that was known as the fundamentalist, And th- this is how they got their name. At the turn of the, the, the century, I'm talking about coming out of the 1800s into the early 1900s, a series of 12 volumes were written that were called the Fundamentals. And the Fundamentals were written on five key subjects that were deemed fundamental to the Christian faith. Don't let me lose you here, but just to get your head there, the five Fundamentals were the Bible is the Word of God, inspired by God, and so it's totally inerrant. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Christ's death is the only atonement for sin. Christ literally and bodily rose from the dead. And all of the miracles that you see in the Gospels actually are historical facts. And and the way that it shook out is anybody who adhered to those five fundamentals became known as fundamentalists. Okay, and so there was this, this very powerful divide between the liberals, the humanists, and the fundamentalists. But listen, y'all. Nobody understood how pervasive and powerful Humanism actually is. It's like a contagious disease that permeates everything and it spreads its infection to everything that it gets near. This could be the craziest horror movie ever. To understand the influence of humanism upon biblical Christianity because something began to happen, man. Listen, at the beginning, the true Christians, those who were truly born again, were able to recognize each other because they all believed the fundamentals. But over a few decades, you know what was beginning to happen? Remember, the the liberals said, the end of religion is to make man happy when he's alive. And in just a matter of a few decades, the basic message of the fundamentalists was the end of religion is to make man happy when he he dies. But do you see what happened? They both adopted a humanistic philosophy. The end of religion is man's happiness. And it's been propagated for so long without anyone questioning it that we don't even recognize it as humanism. Because it's been covered over with evangelical terms and Bible doctrine. But listen, when you get all of the Bible doctrines and Bible terminology off of it, and you really get down to the real essence of the message. I'm afraid where it's left us is that there are Many who are convinced that Christ's kingdom is their final destination. But there are a few who are actually allowing Christ's kingdom to be established in them as a sacred destiny of their life. You hear that? I'm afraid that the real essence of salvation of all things is being lost. And, and I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this can help us to understand the crazy contrast that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 between the many that are on the broad road that leads to destruction, thinking they're on their way to heaven, and the few that are on the narrow road that leads to life. I mean, could it actually come down to a difference between those who make a profession that is all about a destination after this life, and those who actually... Have a possession that is all about a destiny in this life, and listen now. If if what I'm saying about you know this destination thing versus the destiny thing is is still unclear in your mind, if it all sounds like it's you know, it's just a matter of semantics, let let me take the, the last couple of minutes that we have together tonight to lay this out as simply as I can biblically, okay? Now, now listen, I want you to listen very intently here because I, I can tell you this, every sentence that I'm about to say is weighted, okay? So if you're about to fall asleep, try to pull it in for about the next three minutes, okay? And then we'll put a bow on this. Praise God, I'm glad you're here. So me and you will hang out for the rest of the night. Okay, now, now, now listen. You listening? Good, okay. Listen, salvation is about a future kingdom and a destination that will be established when the Lord Jesus Christ invades this planet in all of his splendor and glory and majesty. And the Bible says that when he invades this planet at that time that all of the idols of men will come crashing at his feet along with every man, woman, boy, and girl on this planet and every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and all of the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and all of the earth shall worship him and sing unto his name and his will will be carried out on this earth as it is in heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ will finally receive what the psalmist was constantly talking about him receiving the glory that is due his name and he will establish his rule and his reign and authority as he sits on his throne ruling and reigning in righteousness and holiness and peace and yes that most certainly is a biblical description of the destination to which every true child of God is headed but do you realize that what I just described is also a biblical description of the destiny that God has intended for all of us that have received True, biblical salvation in preparation for our kingdom destination. In other words, okay, now listen carefully. Did you listen to what I just said? Okay, now listen to this. Our salvation, you know what it is? It's that time when the Lord Jesus Christ invades our life in all of his splendor and majesty and glory. And when he comes in, all of the idols of our life come crashing at his feet. And we bow our lives in recognition of his lordship. And both with our lives and with our lips, we are constantly proclaiming Christ's lordship in our lives to the glory of God the Father. And we live the remainder of our existence on this planet in passionate pursuit of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And we spend our lives as true worshipers, Worshiping him in spirit and in truth singing and making melody in our heart to the lord and his will is carried out in our lives as it is in heaven and through our lives we give to him the glory that is due his name and he rules in our lives in peace because his peace rules in our hearts and he reigns in us in righteousness and holiness from his throne of authority in our hearts. Listen, y'all. That's the destiny that God intends for every one of us who have been a partaker of His salvation. It is not... Just a destination. It is a destiny. It's not just about the afterlife. It's about this life. It's not first and foremost about our happiness, but Christ's glory. It's not just about then. It's about now. And everything in Scripture. Praise God. Yeah, man. And everything in Scripture. seems to point to the fact that the only people who actually arrive at that destination then are the people who live their lives surrendered to that destiny now. And maybe that's why Jesus said, and few there be that find it. Okay. For real. Is your life surrendered to that destiny? That's what this week is really all about, man. Just a little wake up call. About what? Real salvation actually is. I, I started with a, a, a question yesterday where I, I asked if the Lord came to you and was just sitting across the table from you, looked you in the eye, and said, Do you think there's more to your life than you're actually living? Or are you giving to me? the maximum glory. Could you say that? And you know what I I think? I think God is probably stirring in the hearts of some of you tonight. It says, yeah, man. I've I've been working off of a different sheet of music in my understanding about what salvation is. But I got it. And I'm stepping over the line because I really understand what this thing is about. (laughs) Would you bow your heads with me as Pastor Jeff comes?